An excerpt from Emerald Empire, written by Katrina Ostrander, read by Jeannie Calvar. Daidoji Narasawa had never been a particularly pious man, but he wondered if offering incense to the kami of the mountains rising abruptly from the plain would convince them to stop glaring at him. The maps claimed this was part of the same range that guarded the back of Daidoji Castle, but here the late spring sunlight reflecting off the snow-capped peaks felt distinctly less warm. That was certainly true of the people he passed. The peasants of Lion Clan lands knew the crest of the Crane Clan well, and they paused their back-breaking labor in the rice fields to scowl as Narasawa's entourage passed by. If he complained of their insolence, the lion would only beat or behead the ones responsible, then laugh behind their sleeves at the delicate crane who couldn't even endure a nasty look. The Daidoji were no frail flowers and if Narasawa did not show his strength to these people, the suffering would extend far beyond a few peasants. We should reach Last Breath Castle by the hour of the horse, his companion, Hiramichi Asayo, said. She had mistaken Narasawa's straightening in his saddle for impatience. He would happily have ridden for days more through this relative tranquility, with the sun glinting off the water in the fields and the songs of the farmers in the distance rather than arrive at his destination, a truth he would not shame himself by admitting. Narasawa said, I was only thinking of the welcome we are likely to receive. Aseo's lips pressed together. If they are interested in seeing this match succeed, even the Matsu can recall their manners. If not... If not, they will throw me before Matsu Chiko-san without even permitting me a bath first. He'd taken the precaution of washing himself at the last inn, but it would still be humiliating to meet his future wife while covered in the dust and sweat of the road. But the lion had agreed to this marriage. Narasawa had no illusions that it would end forever the strife that had given the nearby Lake of Sorrows its name. But the Matsu would not have offered up one of their own if they were not willing to consider a temporary peace. A sharp whistle sounded a signal from one of the Ashigaru escorting Narasawa. Taro had the sharpest eyes in the whole group and had spotted something ahead. There was surely no danger. If blood washed the ground to this close to Last Breath Castle, it would be because a crane army had pressed the Matsu nearly back to their own walls. No bandit was foolish enough to rear their head this near the stronghold of the family that trained both the berserkers and beastmasters. No physical danger, Narasawa amended. Other sorts were not only possible, but likely. Soon after that, he saw the same cloud of dust Taro had spotted. The Ashigaru trotted back toward them and said, It's a patrol, my lord. I make it half a dozen, all mounted and in armor. Narasawa nodded and raised his voice. Halt! And kneel to whomever is coming. His Ashigaru obeyed moving to the edge of the ditch that lined the side of the road and then pressing their faces to the ground. Narasawa and Aseo remained in the saddle. He waited, breathing in the scents of rich mud and spring flowers, watching the lion approach. 
the woman at the head of the patrol, was not surprised to find a group of crane along the road. No doubt the Matsu had been receiving reports of his progress ever since he had crossed the border into Lionlands. She said curtly, I am Matsu Hadeji, magistrate of the Lion Clan. Would you be so kind as to show me your travel papers? He'd shown the same papers at the bridge across Three Stone River, only a few miles back. But challenges of this sort were routine when in hostile territory, and Narasawa had them ready to hand. He reached inside his kimono and removed the packet, encased in hard boards to protect it. Aseo dismounted, took it from him with a bow, and carried it over to the magistrate. Matsu Hudeji spent far more time examining the papers than they required, but finally she closed the boards and bowed. Daidoji-san, I hope your journey hasn't been too tiring. All the way from Kudendoji, but compared to the full sweep of the Emerald Empire, that wasn't far at all. In a fit of courtly inspiration, Narasawa said, How can any journey seem long when happiness waits at the end? Hideji didn't rise to the bait. She said only, I will escort you to the castle. No doubt that was why she'd come to meet him. I am honored by the offer, Narasawa said, and he ordered his Ashigaru to rise. Together they continued toward the high walls of the Matsu city, and the frowning mountains beyond. And so my duty begins. If he failed, then the Lake of Sorrows would grieve for more fallen samurai, and he would be the first of them to die. To the South, Part 1 Written by Marie Brennan Read by David Gordon Buresh A dusty wind blew across the village of Koso, a fly-speck on the western edge of the Empire. Shinjo Tetsuo closed his eyes against the grit, but opened them as soon as he could. Until he established whether there was any real cause for concern, he didn't like the possibility that something might sneak past him, or up on him. When he opened his eyes, everything was quiet. A swift glance around, he bent to study the ground ahead of him, the land sloping down to a brush-filled hollow. His Ashigaro had fanned out to either side of him, likewise searching. In the distance, he heard a pair of voices, Ayuchi Rimei, questioning the bent old woman who led this village. He couldn't make out the words, but he didn't need to. The phrase, superstitious peasants, had come up more than once on their ride here. One might expect Rimei, as a Shigenja, to credit spiritual explanations more readily than the average samurai, but instead of the reverse was true. 
To her way of thinking, all strange sightings were wild animals or drunken farmers until proven otherwise. Still, their patrol had to investigate the rumors. A dead pig, odd sounds in the night, and movement seen in the distance near the edge of the forest. A flattening of dry grass caught Tatsuo's eyes. He followed it to the brush, where he found broken twigs littering the ground. No creature that large would have bothered to wade into the brush, unless it was looking for a hidden place from which to observe the village. Tatsuo's sensei had, after several painful lessons, taught him to remain aware of all of his surroundings, not just the trail in front of him. He straightened and turned before Ramey reached him. Don't tell me you found something, she said, with resignation of the one who had already suspected the answer. She'd been working with the patrol long enough to, that she knew to give his position a wide berth, lest she trample the tracks. Tatsuo showed her what he had discovered. Doesn't look human, he said. Or if it was, they were dragging something. Where does it lead? They followed the trail together, along a depression in the ground that would have concealed the intruder from the village's sight. This thing is intelligent. On and on it went until he halted Rame with a raised hand. We should go back. Get the horses and the Ashigaru before we continue. She squinted at him, raising one hand to keep the sun from her eyes. Continue? We're close to the southern edge of our territory, and this thing is headed yet farther south. We should report in, not chase into the lands that aren't our responsibility. On paper, the lands to the south were imperial possessions. In practice, virtually no one lived out there except the occasional mad hermit or criminal fleeing justice, neither of which were supposed to be there which meant no one was responsible for protecting them. What if it comes back? Tetsuo countered. I don't know what this thing is, but it shows signs of cunning. We were sent here to investigate. I won't consider that done until I've found more than just a trail. He outranked Rume, but Tetsuo knew better than to dismiss her opinions out of hand. There were two of them in this patrol for a reason. Shigunja saw things different than Ibushi did and Ashigaru could hardly be expected to argue with samurai. How far, then? At what point will you say it's time to abandon the trail? Tatsuo grinned. We're unicorn, Rimei-san. What is there in the world that we cannot run down? Rimei was too polite to make Tatsuo eat his words. He could have blamed the Ashugaru's horses, which were of lesser stock than his Negi and Rimei's Irigal, but the truth was that whatever they were following, it was fast. Like a gambler trying to make good his losses, Tetsuo couldn't bring himself to admit that they should give up, even as the leagues rolled by, one day after another, leading them to the south and south and south, following along the western edge of the Shinamin Mori. The great forest was an emerald shadow to their left, primordial and wild, with untold secrets hidden in its depths. Patrols like Tetsuo's, the Shinnaman Wayfinders, kept an eye on the forest's northern fringes in case anything emerged from it to trouble the unicorn lands. But even they rarely ventured very far within. If the trail had dived into the heart of the Shinnaman, Tetsuo would have been forced to concede the chase. There were stories about what happened to people who risked the forest's power, few of them ended well. He might come out a year later, or a century, or not come out at all. 
but the trail kept to the edges, dodging among the sparser clumps of trees where the unicorn's horses could follow without difficulty, as if the creature values speed over concealment. And though he expected Remy to renew her arguments for giving up the chase and reporting in, the farther they went, the more committed she became. He found out why nearly a week into the pursuit, when he sat throwing knots of grass into their tiny campfire and listing every creature he could think that might be their quarry, it was a short list. Animal spirits rarely moved with such purpose. Hibigon never ventured out of the forest. More malevolent things like hungry ghosts or spirits of slaughter would not leave such a trail. When he came to the end of it, Vermeer said, Have you thought about where this thing is going? Tetsuo paused in the middle of nodding more grass. What do you mean? She nodded her chin along the line of the march. It isn't chasing any other creature. None that we've seen tracks for, at least. It isn't wandering, the way it would if it were searching for something. I think this thing knows where it's going. And what's to the south of us? Nothing of note until one reached the Twilight Mountains, home to the minor Falcon Clan and the crab, who guarded Rokugan against the Shadowlands. The wind picked up again, tugging the strands of grass from Tetsuo's fingertips. There were stories. The Moto had once sent an ill-fated expedition to the Shadowlands, trusting in their horses and their blades to defeat whatever they found. The few who survived came back with their hair bleached white from fear. Some people dismissed it all as exaggeration, the Shinnaman Wayfinders had seen too many strange things for Tetsuo to do the same. The enemies the crab faced threatened more than just the body. If some nightmare creature had found its way past the Caillou Wall, it would discover in this deserted western reach an easy road across the Empire to the territory of the Unicorn. He focused once more on Remei, heart suddenly beating fast. Then we have to warn our lord... If we vanish, they won't realize the danger. Right now, it's only a guess, Remy reminded him. I have no proof. I am not a kuni. I don't know how to make the kami tell me whether the thing we are following is corrupted. And none of my talismans can help with that. If we raise the alarm and it turns out to be nothing serious... The Wayfinders already had a dubious reputation. As with the crab, their reports were often too outlandish for others to believe because those others had never seen the Shinnaman Mori with their own eyes. Tetsuo knew he shouldn't let the risk of embarrassment affect his decision, but Ramey had a point. Right now, they had nothing to report. Then we keep going, he said. But the moment we're sure... She nodded. I ride north. No question she would be the one to go. Only a rare few could learn the language of names to command the kami. Compared to her, Tetsuo was disposable. If it came to that, he would hold the creature off for as long as he could. As if she could hear his thoughts, Remei said, but let's make sure it doesn't come to that. Two days later, they saw smoke. It came from within the forest, but not deep within. It was too slender a column to be a forest fire. The trail didn't lead directly toward it, though, and he glanced at Remei. What do you think? We haven't managed to catch this thing in direct chase yet, she said. They may have seen something. 
if they're human. Or spirits, he supposed. Then it would be up to Ramey to talk to them. Except that Ramey shook her head before he could even speak. Not yet. She was right. A fire wasn't proof of anything. Ramey did not need to ride north yet. They approached the edge of the forest. The trees here were ancient and tall. Their trunks, bigger than Tetsuo and Ramey together, could circle with their arms. Their roots fanned out in uneven ridges, with ferns growing between that hid unexpected dips in the ground. Riding in there was just asking to lame one of their horses. Tetsuo gestured at Tama, the youngest and least experienced of their Ashigaru. Wait here, he said. If we haven't returned by sunset, ride north. Take my horse and use Urugal as a remount. Do you understand? The youth swallowed and nodded. The rest of the Ashigaro dismounted with the samurai and proceeded on foot. They moved slowly, watching their footing as much as the forest around them, knowing that a wrong step could result in a fall that could give their position away. Before long, Tetsuo lost sight of his companions and considered trying to regroup. He wasn't far from the source of the smoke, though. Up ahead, three trees had staked out the top of a small rise. If he could get up there... There was no sound, no movement he could see, no shift in the wind, just the hairs on the back of his neck rising. He whirled and brought his bow up to full draw, only to find himself facing the point of another arrow. And behind it, a woman in armor, muffled so it would make no noise, with her face painted to blend with the forest. In the clipped accent of the crab clan, she said, Name yourself before I put this arrow through you. To the South, Part 2 Written by Marie Brennan Read by David Gordon Barash Given the reputation of the Shinomen Mori, Shinjo Tatsuo was almost prepared to believe the sight in front of him was an illusion crafted by some trickster spirit. At least two dozen crab clan Ashigaru were hard at work felling timber, supervised by a hatchet-faced samurai with a loose roll of papers under his arm. They had been at work for some time, judging by the pile of logs laid to one side, and they hadn't wasted any of the branches either. The excess had been transformed into a tidy palisade of fire-hardened stakes. It was a logging expedition, clearly. But what was it doing in this ancient forest? The Haruma scout leading them into the camp wasn't very talkative. She'd attached a group of their own Ashigaro to watch over his, then led Tetsuo and Ramei to her commander, who had set aside his papers as they approached. Gunso-san, the scout said with a brief bow. These unicorn were scouting our camp. 
We were investigating the smoke, Tetsuo corrected her. I am Shinjo Tetsuo, Gunso of the Shinomen Wayfinders, and this is Ayuchi Ramei. We've been pursuing a creature that was sighted outside a unicorn village to the north, and thought that whoever was here might be able to offer assistance. He was in charge of their patrol, but Ramei was responsible for handling spiritual matters, and she broke in. What are your people doing here, anyway? Logging in the Shinomen Mori? Do you have any idea what spirits you might anger? Do you have any way of controlling them? From behind them came another voice, touched with both humor and annoyance. <laughs> that would be my job. Tatsuo turned to find a second man approaching. He wore no armor, but his hakaman tied back sleeves had none of the usual formality of a shigenja's robes, either. If it weren't for these unsettling face paint, white with red lines, Tatsuo would never have identified him as a kuni. The newcomer eyed Tetsuo and Ramei and said, Shinnaman Wayfinders, I thought you unicorn preferred the open plains. Our duties do not always take us where we prefer, Tetsuo said stiffly, turning back to the commander. Please forgive Ramei's blunt way of asking, but the question stands. I'm glad to see a Shigenja with your group, but there are a great many dangers in this forest, and cutting down trees is a quick way to wake them. The commander looked unmoved. We know the risks. But as you say, our duties don't always take us where we want. Hecky is taking care to appease the spirits of the trees before we cut them. That must be the Cooney's name. Aren't there trees in your own lands? None that fit our needs, he said. I am Kaiushuichi, an engineer of the Twelfth Tower Command. We need large beams to conduct repairs on the northern end of the Carpenter Wall, and there's nothing suitable closer to hand. We have Imperial permission to log here. No wonder the camp was so well constructed with a Caillou engineer in charge. But Tatsuo had a feeling it wasn't just normal crab paranoia that made them take such precautions. A feeling that grew stronger when Shiichi spoke again. This creature you're chasing, what is it? He asked as if he already had an answer in mind. And given Rimei's suspicions, Tatsuo couldn't see any good reason to hold back. Courtiers might treat information like treasure, to be hoarded and spent with care, but here in the hinterlands of the Empire, he preferred to reach out with the hand of an alliance. We don't know, he admitted. It's large, and it leaves a broad, flat trail, and it's fast. We... The possibility has occurred to us that it might be something from... further south. He couldn't quite bring himself to say, tainted. Impossible, Shiuchi said without hesitation. Before Tetsuo could write it off as arrogance, he added, We have Kagoe scouting the vicinity constantly, and Heki alert for any sign of the Shadowlands taint. But you have seen something, Tetsuo said. Shuichi glanced past him at the Haruma scout. Kagoe, presumably, she said. Seen? No. However, several of our laborers have gone missing. Mostly without a trace, but in one spot I found a brief track of something like what you're describing. How long ago? Six days. There was no way the creature Tetsuo had been chasing could have been here six days ago. Its trail wasn't that old. Which meant there was more than one. What do you mean, a brief track? I don't mean that I lost it, she said evenly. I mean that it stopped. Hecky doesn't know anything that flies and leaves a track like that, do you? No, Ramey admitted, 
We were following our trail not far from here. We only diverted because we saw the smoke from your fire. If we go back and pursue that, we might find the source of both our problem and yours. That was optimistic of her, given their failure to chase the thing down yet, but Tetsuo was even less willing than before to give up. He gazed past the palisade into the forest. He was sure it held the answers, if he was willing to risk getting them. He had already led his patrol far beyond the boundaries of his duty. It was possible that not one but two clans were at risk from this unknown threat. Kaiusan, he said. Obviously, you have to devote most of your effort to protecting this camp, which means you can't spare much for exploring the nearby forest. But we've come all this way to investigate and are more familiar with the hazards of the Shinman Mori than your own people. I will lead my patrol on a circuit through the area, and if we find anything, we will share it with you before we return north. Gunso-san, Rimei stared at him. Her abrupt shift to formality showed how much this suggestion alarmed her. It was one thing to ride south, but to go deeper into the forest... Tetsuo shook his head. Not you. If Kayu-san is willing, I would have you remain here in his camp until we return. Or until it was clear that they wouldn't. Her expression was mutinous. How do you expect to deal with a spirit if you have no Shigenja with you? I have no intention of engaging with it at all. We will scout only. He knew as well as she did that plans like that rarely worked out, but he wasn't going to be responsible for losing her to the forest. Kuniheki intervened. If you stay here, Ayuchi-san, we might be able to work together and learn more from the spirits. If your intention is to scout Shinjo-sama, he turned to his own commander. Could we lend him Kagoe-san? Tatsuo couldn't deny she would be useful, given how effectively she crept up on him. He bowed to Shuichi. The reputation of the Haruma is well known in the Unicorn Lands. I would be grateful for the assistance. Shuichi nodded. Find me what's causing this, and find a solution. He only had the authority to command Kagoe, but he seemed to be addressing both scouts indiscriminately. We can't afford to lose any more people or time. Tatsuo had to admit that Haruma Kagoe was far more at home in the forest than he was. There were trees in the Unicorn Lands, of course, and he'd been in and out of the fringes of the Shinnaman Mori for years, but his ancestors made their home on the plains, and he never felt comfortable being hemmed in like this. She didn't know nearly as much about the Shinnaman as he did, though. There aren't a lot of friendly things where I usually patrol, she admitted after she nearly shot a rabbit spirit. It faded away an instant before her arrow would have struck. We're trained to assume anything we see is probably dangerous. Wayfinders learn the same thing, Tetsuo said, but we generally try to avoid confrontation, and the Shinnaman, dangerous and needs to be killed, aren't always the same thing. Most creatures in the forest will leave you alone if you don't trouble them. When we find this thing, Kagoe said darkly, I'm not giving it the benefit of the doubt. He couldn't blame her but it would be a moot point if they couldn't find the creature. Or creatures. However many of them there were. Kagoe was the one who had figured it out in the end, proving his sensei's admonition once more. Stopping Tetsuo with one outstretched hand, she breathed a few words, almost too quiet to hear. I think they moved through the trees. Once he looked for it, he saw it too. Fallen leaves and twigs on the ground, and up above... 
branches stripped suspiciously bare. It could have been Hibagon, the reclusive ape-men that haunted the forest. But they swung by their arms and wouldn't leave this kind of damage. Without a word, he knocked an arrow to his bow. Kagoe did the same. Not long after, they heard a sound up ahead. Not the chattering of animals or their spirit kin, and not the weeping of some creature in the form of a woman or a baby, hoping to lure the unwary to their doom. Two different sounds, alternating with one another, like voices in conversation. But the cadence of it was nothing like Rokugani. He and Kagoe separated so that if one of them were spotted, the other could attack or escape. And then, placing one careful foot at a time, Tetsuo crept forward. The voices were coming from a small dell with a quiet, shadowed pool at the center. Two tall boulders stood alongside the pool, narrow outcroppings from some larger mass of stone below. One of the boulders moved, not stone. A creature, two of them, each easily fifteen feet in length, rearing up from their long tails. They were speaking in a hissing, liquid language, like nothing Tetsuo had heard before. Perhaps his nerve failed him at this crucial moment, faced with the pair of giant serpent creatures that his mind screamed must have come straight out of the Shadowlands. Tetsuo didn't think he'd made a sound, but one of them stopped talking, turned to look directly at him. In the Garden of Lies, Part 1, by Marie Brennan, read by Max Williams. In the City of Lies, it was almost refreshing to see a dispute settled with the clean strike of an Iaijutsu duel. Yogo Hidaway had suggested to his lord that it might be advantageous for them if Bayushi Jensato threw the fight. After all, he'd said, Kitsuki-san will hardly be inclined to stay at your party for long if she's humiliated by defeat at his hands. He thought, but did not say, she knows your reputation too well. The city's governor, Shosuro Hiobu, had dismissed the notion with a single flick of her fan. Kitsuki-san may not be trained as an investigator, but she is a master of the Miramoto technique, however unorthodox her style may be. If Jensato does anything less than his best against her, she will know. So now the two Bushi stood facing one another in the night, feet carefully planted in the gravel of the courtyard, the torchlight around them casting shadows that danced even while the sources remained still. Heroway made a show of examining Kitsuki Shoman's stance, but it truly was a show. He was at best an indifferent swordsman himself. 
Like all Miramoto-trained bushi, Shoman stood ready to draw not only her katana, but also her wakizashi. Any unorthodoxy beyond that, however, was invisible to him. She was a stocky woman and would have been considered plain among couriers, but Hiroe always felt that skill created its own kind of beauty. With a few wind-blown strands of hair across her face and her eyes fixed intently on Jinsato, she made a striking picture. He could believe this was the woman who, in defiance of all convention, had established a dojo in Ryoko Oware that accepted any student, not just fellow members of the Dragon Clan, not just Clan Samurai, but anyone with the right to carry Daisho down to Ronin. She even spared some of her time to instruct peasants. Not in swordsmanship, of course. Any peasant found with a sword would be executed, and the sensei would be lucky if she had the opportunity to erase her shame with seppuku. But Shoman taught them the basics of jujutsu as if she were a monk of the Brotherhood, claiming that it improved their bodies and spirits. If it also helped those peasants protect themselves against the ruthless Fireman gangs that held so much of the city in their grip, surely that was coincidence. Given that many of those gangs were in the governor's pay, Shosuru-sama had surprised nearly everyone by permitting Shoman to run her dojo as she saw fit but Heroe knew that Shoman, with the typical unpredictability of a dragon, had offered to share the fate of any student who used her teachings to transgress. So far, at least, Shosuro-sama had not made any attempt to turn that against her. She had even given Shoman this chance to demonstrate the value of her ways, to silence the whispers of her critics. A dozen samurai stood around the dueling circle, waiting to see who would prove the greater, Shoman or Jinsato. They were too respectful of the duel to gossip, but the sound of a fan snapping open cracked the stillness, shockingly loud. Hedaway didn't look away from the duelists, but he noted the offender from the corner of his eye, Bayushi Masanao. The man would pay for that disturbance later. Not that it had disturbed either of the duelists. Jinsato even had a faint cocky smile on his face. It was on the governor's orders that he had publicly disparaged Shoman's style, saying that it could not be worth much if Ronin could learn it. Shoman would never have accepted a casual invitation to a party at the governor's mansion, but she could hardly refuse the chance to defend her honor. According to the customs of Iejutsu, the upcoming strike would settle the dispute one way or another. Gravel crunched as one of the duelists shifted their foot, too minutely for Heroway to see. He found himself holding his breath in anticipation. It's so much more interesting when I don't know how it will end. There was no cue to move. He almost didn't see it happen. The two duelists were standing just out of Blade's reach. Then there was a brief, explosive flurry of steel. When it ended, they were on opposite sides of each other, swords out. The tableau held for a moment before Jinsato relaxed and bowed to Shoman. A small patch of darkness stained his left sleeve. I stand corrected, Kitsuki-san. Please accept my apology. You have truly shown me the strength of your blade. Like a proper dragon, Shoman was too self-controlled to gloat. She returned his bow. There is nothing to forgive, Bayushi-san. The gathered observers murmured to one another, already discussing the political implications of the duel. Shosuro-sama glided forward with a smile, ready to congratulate the victor.
Hedaway did not join them. As the governor's guest, Shoman could not leave the party immediately without giving insult. But he doubted she was the sort to enjoy Shosuro-sama's sophisticated entertainments either. Sooner or later, she would seek out a quiet corner to regain her peace of mind. Retrieving his shamisen from a servant, Hedaway went to find a suitable corner and wait. The shamisen still lay in Hedaway's hands, but many long minutes had passed since he last drummed a note. The instrument had served its purpose, luring Shoman to find the source of the delicate music floating through the nighttime peace of the governor's gardens. The place was lovely even in the spring darkness, but nothing compared to its splendor in the daytime. Then again, perhaps it was just as well that Shoman was seeing the gardens only at night. The peasants of Ryoko Oware referred to the governor's lavish manor as the house that opium built although never where they thought a samurai could hear. They weren't wrong, but the truth was no defense against a samurai's fury, especially not in scorpion lands. Hedaway had been in the gardens many times before, but he found himself in unfamiliar territory now. Ordinarily, he had a well-practiced arsenal of tricks for occasions such as these, the accidental brush of his layered sleeves against his target's hand eye contact that lingered just an instant too long for propriety, but not so long as to be off-putting, the gradual dropping of his voice until it rested comfortably in a low rumble that suggested the languor of the bedroom, gestures that drew attention to his hands. He had cultivated his musical talents in the direction of the shamisen because it gave him a chance to display his most beautiful feature. He had deployed these tricks against countless men and women, and very few of them had proved resistant to his charms. With Shoman, he had abandoned that approach mere minutes into their encounter. Seducing her might be possible, but it would take far longer than he could spare, and any attempt to rush the process would only drive her away. Instead, Hedaway had directed the conversation towards religious matters, and he was getting trounced. Winds blow, nations change, fortunes rise and fall, but the simple folk will always be asked to shoulder the weight, Shoman said, quoting the Tao. And the single-leaf sutra reminds us that the strength of a chain depends on its weakest link. If Hymen are asked to shoulder so much weight, should we not devote our efforts to making certain they are strong enough to bear it? Indeed, we demand the barrets of Bushido from them in countless ways, only we do not give it that name. We expect courage from Ashigaru, duty and loyalty from laborers, reverence and courtesy when they are in the presence of their superiors. Honesty is just as meritorious in a peasant as it is in a samurai, but they lack instruction, and without knowing the pitfalls, how can they choose the correct path? Hedaway was fairly certain the last question was another allusion to the Tao. He would have liked to respond in kind, but none of the quotations that came to mind pointed in the direction he needed. Instead, he was forced to resort to plain speech. But the correct path of a hymen is different from a samurai's, is it not? What if, by instructing them in the precepts of Bushido, you lead them away from their proper dharma? She scoffed at the question. Tell me where it serves the empire for a peasant to be cowardly, or cruel, or dishonest. The nature of their duty is different from a samurai's, that I would not argue, but virtue is virtue. 
and true virtue is the center from which all else proceeds. Hedaway almost smiled. He was no swordsman, but in conversation, as in combat, there were moments where the opponent's guard slipped and left the perfect opening. What of the notion that we live in an age of declining virtue? He said it as a phrase rather than a proper name, Suijendai, but Shoman followed the reference regardless. She came bolt upright on the bench. Individuals may fall from the path of honor, she said, biting off each word, but those who say that means honor itself has lost value are only making excuses for their own weakness. The way of Bushido is given to us by the Kami Akoto himself, and it is a bulwark for our spirits regardless of the age. If we fall short of its ideals, then we simply must strive all the harder to improve ourselves. As the Arrow Sutra says, the path across the plain is easy, the path to the peak hard, but only from the peak may we see far. To claim the plain will lead one to a higher vantage point is nothing more than delusion. Her vehemence took him aback. Hedaway had seen the reports, patchwork and incomplete, about the controversial sect that had taken root in Dragon Lands. They called themselves the Perfect Land, after the paradisiacal realm they claimed waited for believers after their deaths. One of their core tenets was that Rokugan had entered the Age of Declining Virtue, and that samurai were the cause, having strayed from their proper path. The reports spoke of peasant armies assembling in the mountains to the north. Here, in Ryoko Oware, Kitsuki Shoman openly trained Hyman in hand-to-hand combat. It wasn't difficult to imagine she might have something to do with the sect. But judging by her reaction, the notion was nothing more than that. Imagination. Still, he had to be sure. Don't the dragons say there are many paths to the same destination? Some paths are false ones, Showman snapped. My own student! Hedaway flung up a hand before she could finish that sentence, looking past Showman into the darkness of the gardens. Hush! I hear someone. In the Garden of Lies, Part 2, by Marie Brennan. The gardens of the governor's manor were quiet. The sounds of laughter and music from the main building seemed very far away. After a moment, Yogo Hedaway lowered his hand and exhaled, tugging the embroidered sleeves of his kimono back into place. Please forgive me for interrupting you, Kitsuki-san, 
I heard someone passing nearby and did not want them to misunderstand our conversation, hearing only part of it. Kitsuki Shoman relaxed slowly. She had not reached for her blades, but he had no doubt she could have drawn them in the blink of an eye if a real threat had emerged. Thank you, Yogo-san. Her voice was much softer now than it had been a moment before. As you can tell, this is a matter on which I feel passionately, but I should not allow that to make me speak without restraint. It is a pleasure, and a rare one, to speak with a member of your clan without feeling I am being manipulated like a puppet on strings. He pitied her. Kitsuki Shoman was a good and honorable soul. She did not belong in the City of Lies, with its opium trade and its fireman gangs and its courtiers who knew there were ways and ways of manipulating someone, not all of them obvious. Then again, reflecting on what she had said concerning peasants and Bushido, perhaps she felt this was exactly where she needed to be, bringing the light of honor to a place that saw it so rarely. If so, he wished the fortune's blessings upon her. She would need them. Shoman rose from the bench and bowed. I have taken too much of your time, she said, and I would not want to give offense to the governor by vanishing from her party for too long. Heroe rose as well, lying aside his shamisen. There is no need to apologize, Kitsuki-san. I attend many of these parties, but I cannot say I've ever had a conversation quite like this one. You have given me a great deal to think about. He glanced toward the main building and contrived to look a touch embarrassed. I will wait here a while longer. If we were to return together, someone might draw the wrong conclusions about where you have been and what you have been doing. On any other night, with any other target, those conclusions might be correct. But not tonight, and the consideration made Showman smile. Thank you. Again. They exchanged bows one last time, and then she turned and made her way back through the gardens to the bright lanterns of Shosuro-sama's party. Heroway waited until she had vanished inside, then sat down and began to play idly on the shamisen. He truly did enjoy music, and the sound would mask his conversation against any prying ears that shouldn't be nearby. Not even one leaf rustled as Shosuro Miyako materialized by his side. She wasn't dressed in the stereotypical garb of a shinobi, but the muted gray of her jinbei blended seamlessly into the darkness. Heroway didn't even know where she had been hiding. None of the stones or trees or bushes looked large enough to conceal a woman, no matter how small and wiry. But then, he was not trained for such things. Why did you interrupt her? There wasn't anyone approaching, and she was on the verge of saying something about her student. Hedaway shrugged and turned one of the shamanson's turnpegs a minute degree. We already know about her student. They fought, and Sato left. According to the current reports, she's now very highly placed in the Perfect Land hierarchy up north. Kitsuki-san's gratitude is worth more to me than any additional details she might have been able to offer about a woman she hasn't seen in years. You see, I have now shown myself to be that rare breed of scorpion, a man she can trust. Miyako snorted softly. She worked in the shadows and head away in the light, but that didn't make him any more honorable than she was. So what was the point of this, then, if not to find out more about Sato? 
There have been suspicions that Kitsuki-san's argument with her student was staged, and that she's been using her dojo to recruit new followers to the perfect land, training them for rebellion. If that were the case, it might indicate that the leadership of the Dragon Clan supports the perfect land in secret. With any other clan, Hidaway would have dismissed the idea out of hand. The preaching of the sex leaders challenged the very foundations of samurai dominance, blaming them for the Empire's mounting problems. But the dragon tolerance for eccentricity often led in surprising directions, and their clan champions had given some inexplicable orders in the past. Hedaway could not put anything past them, not without investigating first. This time, the investigation had led to a dead end. She sounded sincere. Hedaway nodded. I think she was. Either that, or she's a good enough liar that she should be invited to teach our own students. It doesn't completely rule out Dragon's support for the sect, of course, but I think Kitsuki-san's dojo can be crossed off the list. So what now? He laid one hand on the shamisen's strings, silencing them. Now, now you go north. Miyako was very good at stillness, but she turned to look at him. My lord? We know little about this sect, but what we do know worries me. I'm sending you to the mountains. Disguise yourself as a peasant, infiltrate the sect, and get as close as you can to their leaders. I want to know what their goals are, and whether they have ties to the dragon beyond Sato having trained with Kitsuki-san. It could be useful leverage. The scorpion could sell what they knew, or offer to remove the threat, or, if necessary, create a spark in just the right place to turn this pile of tinder into a wildfire. Whatever served their purpose best. But only if they had more information. Miyako bowed, lower than she normally would. Her diction fell to match, into the speech of a peasant. I hear and obey, my lord. Smokeless Fire by Katrina Ostrander, read by Jeannie Calvar. Are you ready? Yes, Sensei. Isawa Atsuko wrapped the youth's knees with a bamboo stick, and he stiffened with pain. 
Nobu showed great promise, but his sensei had to keep him grounded. No, sensei, he corrected himself. I am not ready. Better. You are not prepared, not truly, to witness the void. We must restrain your vision, so that you may learn to see without sight. Strengthen your will, so that you do not lose your very self in the realm of void. The initiate nodded and closed his eyes. He breathed deeply, in a calm and focused pattern, centering himself in this moment. Atsuko settled into a meditative pose beside the initiate. Her knees complained, and the room was too hot, but she would move past the ache and discomfort soon. Let the sounds of the temple reach you and move past you. She opened her ears and called attention to the current of the world. Hear the muffled patter and shuffling feet rising and fading, rising and fading, the wind rustling through the pines, the birds chirping in their branches. They continued like this for some time, and Nobu's breathing slowed even further. Others conversed in low tones elsewhere in the complex. A gust of wind surged, and a branch creaked. Faintly, the waterfall beyond the compound tumbled into the pool below. Her apprentice would perceive the river for himself now, and allow his ego to gently drift away. Atsuko allowed herself to do the same. Minutes passed, perhaps hours. She stood against the coursing river, serving as an anchor for her charge, when a faraway knot pulled her taut like twisted silk. Something is wrong! Nobukun, leave now! She waited until her apprentice had surfaced. Satisfied that he was safe, she searched for that constricted feeling, pulled against it, and followed it to its source, flowing against the stream of space and time. Eyes closed, Atsuko reached for her scrying bowl. Where the mortal mind struggled to comprehend the churn of the void, the sacred metal could capture fleeting images on the surface of the water within. The chill emptiness cascaded over her hands, as though she were holding a bowl of mountain snow. She opened her eyes and peered within. The purple and fur robes of a rider on horseback. A carven antler flashing silver. Wings of gold unfurling, a gleaming ruby glow between them, cracking in two. The sun and moon trading places along the horizon, plunging the world into darkness. That darkness pooled within the bowl, writhing and seething, twisting, growing darker and longer into a shadowy form. Where its feet touched the earth, blood ran like a river, coursing through rivers and mountains and plains. The creature followed the blood, and in its wake darkness spread, like a cloud blotting out the sun. East. It was heading east, toward the rising sun, toward the dawn-radiant imperial palace. Fear struck like debris in a swollen river. She cast about for a handhold and pulled herself out of the torrent. She cried out as her consciousness slammed back into her aching body, and both tumbled backward. The bowl clanged to the floor. As she pulled herself up, Nobu was retching. The disturbance, it must have resonated in her ill-prepared student as well. For the void to have washed over him, even when I had sent him out... Soft wails rose up around them from elsewhere in the complex, confirming her fears. She had to make contact with Master Ujina and Lady Kaide immediately. They would have to warn the Emperor before it was too late.
Atsuko's creaking voice faded from her mind, but even when the touch of the void left Kaide, the chill in her heart did not. It shouldn't have surprised her. The Shigenja of the Phoenix Clan had suspected for a long time that the unicorn's foreign sorcery was dangerous. The Emperor should never have accepted it into his empire. And now it had caused ripples in reality itself, ripples that had been felt by all those with the gift to perceive the void. Fortune must have smiled upon Atsuko, or the Ashinkan might not have had the chance to pull apart the tangled knots of the future and catch a glimpse of the source of the waves. Kaide poured herself a cup of the tea infusion and placed her hands on both sides of the porcelain, a vain attempt to ward off the chill. When she closed her eyes, echoes of the disturbance washed over her again, and the dizziness returned. She breathed in the sharp scent of ginger to ground herself and quell her unease. She could reach out, try to send herself to the place and time whence the ripples came, but she dared not attempt the journey from within the capital. She could drown in the emptiness, or worse, drag down others with her, as she had before. She would not risk losing anyone else. She opened her eyes and sipped at the tea, but still her hands trembled. They said she had inherited Ugina's gift, that one day she might prove an even more powerful Ishinkan than he. But what good was her gift if it was too powerful to be used? The universe seeks equilibrium in all things, Kaide, her father had assured her. To have been granted such a terrible gift meant that there would be a terrible need in her lifetime, and one day she would succeed him as the master of void. She prayed she would be ready when that day came, for both the loss of her father and the weight of the responsibility that would be placed on her shoulders. Here in the capital, she could use other powers, scholarship and diplomacy. She represented her father and the rest of the elemental council in the highest court, and she advised his imperial majesty on matters of spirits and the realms. The phoenix had supreme authority on all the realms except this one, that of Ningendo, the mortal realm, the realm threatened in Atsuko's vision. It was the sole province of the other clan's council. The other clans would not take kindly to her interference in their domain. All official imperial business was suspended for the length of the Chrysanthemum Festival, but Kaede's warning could not wait, not when the Ashinkan had enacted powerful rituals to contact her across hundreds of miles in an instant, and not when there was a chance the unicorn would flaunt their foreign magics before the emperor, endangering him and the innocents who had come to celebrate the day. Kaide found the emperor and his children, their sapoon guards, and the highest-ranking members of the imperial ministries in the second-story gatehouse that marked the entry to the palace. Kicho curtains and reed blinds filtered the glare of the summer heat and shielded the hante from public sight while allowing him to observe the ceremonies. As she bowed and entered, she caught Crown Prince Soteri's smirk and lingering gaze, but she couldn't let that distract her now. She spied Ishikawa, captain of the Sapoon Honor Guard, and maneuvered herself closer to him, guessing, correctly, that he would step away to greet her. They exchanged the sophisticated dance of pleasantries, but she needed to speak with him alone, away from the rest of the royal delegation. Captain, would you join me in trying to catch a better glimpse of the parade? 
The sounds from the thronged mass in celebration below would keep their words from becoming court gossip. Of course, Ishikawa replied, casting a quick glance to the ruby champion, Agasha Sumiko, who nodded and stepped closer to her charges, the emperor and his heirs. A cheer went up from the citizens of the Forbidden City, and the procession rounded the corner. She had been looking forward to this day, when the pall of mourning for Doji Satsume would finally be banished by the mirth of celebration. Now the crescendo of the wooden clappers and drumbeats sounded like a sickening cicada's call. Below them, in the crowded streets, the representatives of the Otomo, Sapun, and Mia families paraded in their imperial arraignment past the gates. Chrysanthemum blooms were draped about them in ribbons, and they held aloft emerald banners, emblazoned with the golden imperial mon. "'What has cast the shadow I see in your eyes?' Captain asked. Kaide took a deep breath. "'I received word from Starry Heaven Sanctuary today.' Ishikawa recognized the name of the school for Voidshiginja, and that whatever the message was, it could not wait. "'I come bearing dire portents. Our Shinkan believe the Emperor is in danger. A darkness threatens from the far west, across the spine of the world. All of us have felt it, but one of our own caught a glimpse of its provenance. We believe it originates with the unicorn and their talismanic sorcery, their so-called name magic, Mishodo. The captain considered her words in silence. After the Imperials marched the lion, their warriors in full war regalia white manes flowing in the wind. These samurai had defended Rokugan from invasion time and again, whether it was from the hordes of the burning sands, the fleets of the ivory kingdoms, or more far-flung foreigners. But would they be able to protect the emperor against this shadowy threat? Once the darkness formed, would there be any stopping it? Would the lion, seemingly poised to start an all-out war with the crane, be ready? the phoenix's fledgling champion, Shiba Sukune, would be hard-pressed to foster peace between those two bitter rivals. Perhaps not even the emperor could, now. The lion warriors turned and bowed toward the gatehouse in perfect unison. They rose and shouted, Banzai! for their emperor, before continuing the procession through the forbidden city. Her words would be an insult to the honor of the Sapun family and their schools, but Kaede mustered the courage to ask, if the unicorn use their accursed talismans today and something happens, will the emperor's guards be prepared? Ishikawa's eyes went wide and he immediately checked the gatehouse behind them, ensuring the safety of the imperial family. The members of the honor guard are prepared to sacrifice everything to safeguard the emperor's life, and the hidden guard Shiginja have sworn to protect the emperor's very soul. She pressed further, her words bordered on impropriety, but they had known each other for years. They could be honest with each other. If she had tried to offer her advice to the Sapun Shikinja, they would have dismissed her out of hand. She took a deep breath and asked, Can they defend against forces they do not understand? He stood straighter, his hands curling into resolute fists. They are the best of the best, and they have never failed his majesty. Before the lion contingent had finished their past, the drumbeats and song of another clan floated down the avenue. The crane were next, promising a spectacular performance of dance and artistry. Cerulean robes and ribbons flowed and ebbed like the great sea of the sun goddess, and like a school of fish, silver swords flashed in a scene from a kabuki play. Such beauty was so fragile, 
so easily snuffed out by the wickedness of the world. Kaide continued unsteadily. The techniques of the different families are among their greatest secrets, and their Shiginja traditions are even more carefully guarded. Only over many centuries have the Asawa come to understand the strengths and weaknesses of each clan's Shiginja. The Soshi can lift their prayers wordlessly, while the Kitsu invoke the guidance and protection of their ancestors. We do not know precisely how they do it, but we, and the Hidden Guard, know what to expect at the very least. Are not the Asahina Shiginja's charms very similar to, if not the same as, the Uchi's talismans? Ishikawa tilted his head slightly, looking askance at Kaide. Both the crane and unicorn amulets seem to bestow the blessings of the kami upon their wielder. Were they truly blessings of the kami, or some demon's boon? Of that we cannot be certain. No one is. The Asahina's charms of bamboo, folded paper, silken bells looked not unlike the omamari crafted by shrine-keepers to share their kami's blessings, although the Asahina's protections were much more powerful. By contrast, many of the Ayuchi talismans took the shape of hideous monstrosities, the human form corrupted, with scale-covered tails, feathered wings, horned heads, and furry legs. They were as grotesque as the oni that twelled in Jikoku. Kaide had to make him understand. I swear, Captain, we do not bring this to you lightly. You lead the Emperor's protectors. Please convey my fears to the Emperor. It will only mean something if it comes from you. If Mishodo is as dangerous as we fear, and your guards are met with a terrible threat to the Emperor, then you believe we must forbid it. Ishikawa filled in her blanks, releasing a sigh. The phoenix and the lion will rejoice at seeing what they believe to be heresy squashed but the dragon and crane will not stand idle while their ally is censured. The crab may be relieved to see their old enemy weakened, or perhaps they will see it as losing a possible new defense for their wall. No doubt the scorpion will seek to capitalize on the situation either way. Most of all, the unicorn would not look kindly on the emperor refusing to accept their manner of service. Yes, there would be many political ramifications, but the spiritual threats were much more complex and perilous than mere mortal concerns. Kaida replied, Yet, if they brought back witchcraft from the burning sands, then surely it is the emperor who has the wisdom to determine whether such arts continue to serve his empire. As Lady Sun's conduit to her lost descendants, the emperor was effectively divine, his wisdom irrefutable except by other hante. The phoenix procession came next, instantly recognizable by the portable shrine carried by the guardians of the Sheba family. Around the warriors, a flock of Shiginja, priests, and shrine-keepers danced and sang for the glory of the spirit they carried. It was said to be the Kami of Sapun Hill, the guardian spirit of the land beneath this very city, who had watched over the line of Hante since the city's founding. There is another way, Ishikawa began. If, as you suggest, the danger lies in not knowing, then perhaps instead of outlawing it entirely, the unicorn will submit to teaching the hidden guard the nature of their powers. Daiuchi would be loath to give up their secrets, Kaide pointed out. Something so simple as the captain's solution could never work. The unicorn are a practical clan. Their champion may well decide it is better to confer with the Sapoon than lose the arts of her Shiginja. We shall see, said Kaide. Ishikawa gazed out at the crowd. The next delegation snuck up on them. Hot on the heels of the phoenix like the deepest shadow following the brightest light, a group of acrobats tumbled and contorted and leapt from atop each other's backs, spinning through the air before landing gracefully on their feet. 
Dancers joined them, donning mask after mask and swirling among the silks such as they seemed to flit about the street. This, too, had to be a trick of some kind, although what hidden meaning lay beneath, Kaede could not guess. Mine will not be the only voice advising him. The emperor has many counselors, and you can be sure each will have their own opinions. Any decision will come neither lightly nor quickly. By then it might be too late. She would have to find a way to sway these other counselors, or find a way to protect the imperial family herself. This cannot be delayed as so many matters of court are. Please take this directly to him, I beg of you, for my sake, but also for the emperor's. Ishikawa's eyes held hers too long, but neither of them could look away. Very well, Kaede-san. If the emperor indeed judges your concern sound, he will need help to enforce his laws. We have the emerald magistrates, but the jade magistrates of yore are... A cheer went up, cutting him off. The phoenix will assist however they are needed. Make any sacrifice, Kaede quickly put in. The office of the jade champion had not been needed in centuries, and the empire did not need them now. The elemental masters were the supreme authority on spiritual matters, and they would see to the law's implementation themselves. They would ensure that there would be no cause for the imperial ministry dedicated to rooting out heretical Shigenja to be reinstated. At last, the delegation she feared most came into view. Their contingent mounted atop terrifying steeds, their purple and white garb bearing patterns she had never seen before. A stench wafted up from the horses, sickly sweet and turning her stomach. The clop-clop-clopping of hooves against the stone-paved avenue matched the pounding of her heart. Their wickers and neighs sent shudders down her spine. Please, let nothing happen, she prayed. Her power answered unbidden, welling up inside her. The cold emptiness of the void lapped at her feet, as though she were standing in the surf of a starry night's sea. Despite the heat of the day, she shivered beneath her many-layered robes. Kaide, are you— Forget me, she managed to whisper. Go to the emperor. Ensure he is safe. While the horses trotted in circles, weaving a pattern like the shifting sun, a unicorn shiginja at the circle's center held aloft a golden-winged talisman, a ruby gem glinting with the light of Amaterasu. No! The void knocked her feet from under her, and a riptide of power threatened to consume her. Let go, and you will have all the power you need. Surrender to the will of the world. I will not give in, but I must see. Her vision darkened, and she saw into the realm of void, where before had existed only the parade. Now infinite streetgoers were packed into the avenue, souls from every moment from the distant past to the far future, their elements bleeding through the scene in four colors. War, peace, desolation, desecration. She strained to find a single thread in time, to see where the unicorn Shigenja had stood. The cold of the void pressed down, trying to drown her. There! She could see it for but an instant, a spirit, a shadowy creature of smokeless fire, horned and bestial. It howled, writhing against some binding force, trying to pry itself loose. Deeper and deeper into the nothingness, one with an ocean that never ended. Remember yourself, came her father's voice. Do not lose your way. I am Asawa Kaide, daughter of Ujina, daughter of Nunube, sister to Tadaka, spiritual advisor to Hante the 38th, betrothed to Kodo Tatori, friend to Ishikawa. She surfaced from the darkness and gasped at the returned warmth of the sun. The emperor, the princes, 
A cry went up from the crowd, one of joy, not fear. Her back was pressed against the battlements, her legs shaking, breath unsteady. She prayed no one had seen her stumble or sensed that she had nearly lost herself to her power. The unicorn finished their display with a bow to the emperor, and they bid their horses trot past the gatehouse. Much of the crowd's attention turned from the parade, moving on to the next celebration, or to the countless stalls of food and wine. The crab, who were next, had offered only a dour contingent of warriors for the parade of the great clans. The captain returned, wariness in his eyes. I saw something, she managed, her voice trembling, a spirit trapped within the talisman. It was trying to break free, trying to get to the emperor. He regarded her for a long time. Something in his eyes told her he believed her, but he wasn't convinced. I will see to it that his majesty is warned, but that is all I can guarantee. He bowed his farewell and returned to the gatehouse. Fortunes guide us all, Haide whispered. Only the dragon remained. Ambassador Kitsuki Yaruma and his meager delegation marched in silence. The ambassador turned and looked upon Kaide with a cold, knowing stare. She could not fathom why. A Most Suitable Teacher by Katrina Ostrander Read by Jeannie Calvar Several weeks later, Ide Tadaji had expected such a gambit from the scorpion, but not from the phoenix. Suddenly, rumors swirled around Mishodo at the highest levels. Some advisors were said to be advocating for the emperor to outlaw it entirely. There had been scant time to prepare a response, to call in favors among the emperor's most trusted counselors, and ensure that the unicorn did not suffer a major loss of face in the impending session of court. He had moved as many pieces as he could to gain the advantage, to force the game to unfold as he willed it. If his opponent had outmaneuvered him, it would fall within Alton Sarnai's rights to call for his retirement. Or seppuku. Ambassador Ide Tadaji, came Captain Ishikawa's voice as he rounded a corner and entered the audience chamber. Tadaji knelt deeply on the mat. When he straightened himself, the captain had settled in with the painted green bamboo forest on the screen behind him. Golden chrysanthemum medallions had been inlaid on each screen, lest anyone forget the Sapoon's royal lineage. Captain Ishikawa, thank you for inviting me this day, Tadaji offered. The Sapoon family was normally reclusive, 
focused single-mindedly on their task of protecting the emperor and his immediate family. It was on such business that the unicorn's representative had been brought into their sanctum. No doubt you have heard of the concerns raised over your clan's magical practices, Ishikawa began. Tadashi nodded. Yes, Captain. Ishikawa had carefully omitted the phoenix's ownership over those concerns. Was it due to his sympathies for the clan? Or because he was one of those few Imperials who did not see a benefit from increased rivalry among the clans? A heaviness weighed in the air. The moment of truth. Ishikawa sat before him, but Tadaji could feel him standing behind him as well, his second, ready to finish off the self-inflicted agony. Had Ayuchi doomed the unicorn by adopting these practices from the Sahir? When the fortunes and Kami ignored his prayers in the burning sands, should he have accepted their refusal? Shinjo no Kami herself had allowed the practice. Do not dishonor her with your doubt, Tadaji. Although it had only been a moment, Ishikawa finally said, The Emperor does not believe the magic of the unicorn need be censured. The shadow standing over him fell away with the words, but Tadashi did not dare allow himself a sigh of relief. Nothing would be so simple. The terms of the Emperor's forbearance came next, and the phoenix would not permit the unicorn to go on their way completely unscathed, not if the elemental masters had aught to say about it. The unicorn have served the emperor well in their time venturing in foreign lands, as well as during their time here. We do not see cause to prevent them from serving in their fashion. However, there it was. The sapoon must serve their duty as well, and they cannot protect the emperor knowing so little of the practice and its nature. We require that one of the unicorn's practitioners travel to the capital to teach our guards. Alter the bargain, sweeten the arag for the unicorn somehow. He made to speak, then stopped himself. What could he say to make the Imperials show greater mercy than they already had? Ishikawa continued. We understand that Aichi Dayu's own daughter had recently completed her Genpuku and is among your most promising Mishodo practitioners. Ah, yes, Shahai. The perfect candidate for a teacher. And a hostage. Was this Kaide's doing? A masterstroke. If the unicorn's magic ceased to be acceptable, the clan would be forced to cease immediately, lest anything befall the daughter of the Ayuchi Daimyo. The shadowy second had withdrawn to stand over her head, sword ready to swing. She will be an honored guest in this very palace and afforded all the luxuries of the Forbidden City. So they would take her away from her people, her father, her home. She was to become a mere cog in the machinations of court and a traitor in the eyes of her people. Even if she had been commanded by the emperor himself to do so, she would still be sharing her family's secrets, betraying its tradition to outsiders. She would never truly be welcome among the Ayuchi again. None of that mattered to the emperor or his family. Why should it? Of course— I will send word to Lord Ayuchi Dayu upon one of our fastest steeds. The Emperor extends his assurances that all his servants are greatly valued for their service. We humbly accept, and are most grateful for, the Emperor's faith. The rest of the clan would have to feel the same. 
they had no other choice. Yes, the Emperor's wisdom had spared the Unicorn delegation the humiliation of a tremendous blow to their resources at a time when they needed to be strong and attractive allies for the Crane and make use of the Crane's political acumen, even if Hotaru's coffers couldn't pave the diplomatic road as easily as they once could. The Lion would be furious, but then again there was already no love lost between them and the Unicorn. He would deal with Ambassador Ikoma Ujiaki, even if their words might well become blows exchanged on the battlefield soon. The Phoenix, however. They would not cease casting a suspicious eye at the Clan of the Wind. It would be almost impossible to win their aid, even with the help of the Dragon Clan. The pieces had shifted on the board in a single stroke, as though someone had picked up the board and slid everything to one side. A few were bound to fall off entirely. The question was whether the pieces could be brought back to the table once they had been removed from the game, and what Tadashi had to do to make that happen. Better to be Certain by Robert Denton III, read by Jeannie Calvar. Hiruma Shizuyo didn't set her camp until the shadows of the parched landscape no longer matched whatever cast them. Even her own shadow was tall and branched, like a flawed oak, stripped to the bark. This was the game the Shadowlands played. She sorted her supplies and numbered her cache of arrows with paper blessings tied to their shafts. She left everything on the cart and released the ox to return to the wall without her. As she watched it go, her fingers brushed the smooth jade pendant hanging from her neck, the one thing that wasn't expendable. She spent the day setting Belladorn tripwires and driving standing torches into the cracked ground around the camp. Memorizing the terrain would be futile. It would just shift when she looked away. Only the landmarks she left would remain consistent. When the sun touched the west horizon, she lit the torches, nose wrinkling at the scent of fish oil and pine. Aching from a day spent in armor, she started a campfire by her tent and planted her tetsubo like a banner. Fair warning. Then, facing the south, she sat and waited. The wind was barely audible beneath the sliver of pale indigo moon. Nothing stirred beyond her bubble of campfire light, not even the sparse patches of dead grass. After a time, she pulled a stack of cards from her satchel and shuffled them. She dealt herself a single card from the bottom of the deck, 
an ink-washed depiction of a barbed tapeworm, a diamond of white space forming an inhuman mouth, leered at her from the card. Sumunagi, she said, hides in supplies, kill with fire or smother with jade oil. The next card off the bottom revealed a hulking creature of muscle and sinew, a yawning, toothy mouth where its head should have been. Kanu's Oni, engage from afar, use jade arrows or exploit the narrow windpipe. Another card. A segmented shell and a mass of cockroach limbs capped with human hands. Gokimono, once human, compelled to extinguish lights, kill with a bush warbler's whistle, rose from beyond her camp. By the end of the trill, it was a human voice, mournful in its wordless cry. Shizuo raised her eyes. No movement except the flickering shadow of her tetsubo. She inched closer. Another card. A splotchy human walking in splintered armor, one eye just an empty socket. Hayakue, animated corpse. She stared into the dancing flames. Kill as you would a man. Shijuyo ignored her spine's dull ache and the burn beneath her eyelids as she prodded the traps beneath the morning sun painted a sick shade of purple. An uneventful night spent in her armor left her limbs heavy and stiff. Her body cried for sleep, but it wouldn't be safe until the hour furthest from the hour of the ox, the hour sometimes written as the hour of Fulang. Only one trap had caught something, a trembling white and tan fluff with slender ears. The rabbit was tangled in the sling, helpless. It cast Shizuyo a pleading look. She narrowed her eyes. The hair twitched, as if trying one last time to wrench free. She slammed her tetsubo down. There was a wet crunch, like a stomped kombucha squash. She exhaled until any remorse was gone. It was better to be certain. The campfire had seen Shizuyo identify 35 creatures in her demon deck before a tinny bell clatter broke the silence. In the night beyond, one of the pinprick torches blinked out. She strung her bow and collected her arrows. In the distance, something skittered into the light of the next torch. Before the light was extinguished, she barely caught sight of spindly cockroach limbs and human hands. A cold gasp froze her. The creature had come from the south, the direction of the caravan. Her fingers found her pendant. The jade would kill it, just one touch. No, not if this was it. Shijuyo readied an arrow and pointed at the next closest torch. She counted to five, then released. The torch went dark. Something screamed. Another arrow found it at the next nearest torch. In the one after... She saw the arrow shafts protruding from its glossy plates. Five torches yet to go. Then would be the campfire. And then another arrow. Then another, again and again. Now it scrambled faster, closer. Its outline grew against the night sky, blotting out the stars with its darkness. Her racing heart tightened as she launched the last arrow, as the final torch, a mere hundred feet away, suddenly went dark. A shriek. A dull thud. Silence. Shizuyo carried a piece of the campfire to the horror's motionless body. The arrows were deeply embedded, their written blessings now blank scraps. She could recover none. 
She held her breath as she finally brought her makeshift torch to where the killing arrow protruded from the eye of its human face. It wasn't him. She tossed the torch onto the body and returned to camp. Shujuyo startles awake. Ashes floated against the midday sky. She spat a curse. An entire morning wasted. No time to replace the used traps. She cannibalized the cart for firewood as the sun dragged a crimson path into the western ridge. Then she lit the remaining torches. Even with the soreness in her bones, it didn't take long. Hours dragged in silence, and the campfire slowly ate away at itself. Firelight glinted along the jade pendant as she turned it over. The dreamlike image of the hair slipped into her mind, its prone body and desperate eyes. She shook her head and the vision tumbled away. Maybe it had really been a hair. Maybe it hadn't. The only way to be sure was to use her jade. A faint bell, one of her surviving traps, far from the remaining torches. Again, she frowned. She took her tetsubo and stepped into the dark. The trap was triggered, but there was nothing there. Her fingers brushed clawed grooves in the dirt, numbing with slow realization. She spun around and sprinted back to the campfire, but she was too late. Her tent blackened in the fiery column, her supplies crackling in the heat. She gritted her teeth at the high-pitched laughter. Goblinoid forms dancing around the flames, their spindly shadows entwined. Bakemono, three of them. One tossed her cards into the fire with her remaining torches. It laughed again. She caught up to it and smashed it with her tetsubo. It went silent. The remaining two turned, wide-eyed gazes flickering from Shijuyo to their dead comrade. They shrieked. Her fingers slipped from the tetsubo handle as one charged into her, knocking her backward. Her armor cracked and the wind was pushed from her lungs. <sighs> Claws raked her cheek as the thing shrieked again and again. Her hand darted to her hip, but her wakushashi's sheath was empty. She grit her teeth and tore the frenzied thing away, hurling it into the bonfire. Screams pierced the night. She started to roll to her feet, but the last goblin leapt into her chest. Her blade flashed in the creature's hands, slicing through her armor swing by swing. She reached for her tetsubo, but she could only graze the handle. The goblin arched its back, mangled blade above its head, readying a death blow. It roared in triumph. The jade pendant, she had no choice. She tore it free and crammed it into the creature's maw. The goblin flailed, shrieking, clawing its face as if a burning coal were in its mouth. With new energy, Shijuyo lunged for her tetsubo. Spinning, she brought it down. The goblin's head broke like an egg. Ragged breaths shook her. The pendant was now black oozing in its ruined jaw. She smashed its face again, and again, over and over, until she only had the strength to curse the fortunes. It wasn't until dusk that movement on the southern horizon caught Shizuyo's gaze, a thin silhouette limping slowly toward her camp's charred remains, its navy blue cloak tattered and stained. Human, she rose, watching his slow progress, her heart beating in tandem with his heavy steps. He didn't look up until the sun was nearly gone, twilight painting the landscape in purple hues. He froze, spotting her, just a short distance away. His cracked lips parted. Mother? His eyes, amber like his father's, lit up. 
The tattered cloak fell as he ran. Mother, thank the gods. I thought I would never see you again. She narrowed her eyes. He slowed to a stop, confusion flickering across his face. The tetsubo handle pressed against her palm. Mother, what are you... He shook his head. It's me, mother. Haruma Kinjiro, your son. She did not react. His amber eyes searched the ground. We never reached Haruma Castle. I'm the only one left. I was determined to survive, to see Yukino again. She is well, yes? He smiled weakly. We're getting married in spring, remember? You insisted on spring. Her chest was like a rope twisted too tight. Insects were screaming. The sun bled over the peaks. She didn't recognize his shadow. She didn't recognize hers. His smile faded. T Take me to the Kuni Shiginja, he stammered. I'm well. I, I can prove it. He reached for her with pleading eyes. Mother! She slammed the Tetsubo into his face. His skull crumpled like a hollow shell. He fell. Her shadow blanketed his prone body. He jerked as if trying to see from his now empty socket. His wet scream broke the night. The Tetsubo came down. Then, only her shuddering heart made any sound. Shijuyo cradled jade beads as the Kuni Shiginja with red and white face paint plucked a black thread from her hair and held it taut beneath his flaring nostrils. Cavalry master Hidasuru sat before her with crossed arms. She lingered on the courtyard gates, lungs nearly bursting from her held breath. Is it done? She nodded. Are you sure? She raised her expressionless gaze. I made certain. The wind carried specks of ash across the red sky. Somewhere a bonfire was burning. The Cooney snatched the beads and raked a prolonged look over her palms. She didn't flinch. At last he let her go. No sign of the taint, Surosama. Even so, she should be quarantined at the shrine for seven days of cleansing. Make the arrangements. After the Shiginja left, Suru offered Shijuyo a thin scroll. She accepted it with limp fingers. Inside was her son's new name. The name they would use whenever they remembered him. His old name was tainted now. My condolences, he said. We will erect a marker in his memory. Although the caravan never reached its destination, you should be proud. He died serving the crab clan. He rose to leave. It looked just like him. He paused. She wavered. It had his voice. It knew things. Again, she met his gaze. It even called me mother. That is the game the Shadowlands plays. It wears the faces of our loved ones to sow our hearts with doubt. But that thing was a pretender. It could not have been human. Kneeling again, Suro laid his hand over her shoulder. After all, if it was repelled by the burning pine inside the torches, recoiled from your arrows, and burned at the touch of your jade, then it could not have been your son. Before her paling face, he gave a reassuring smile. At least of that, you can be certain.
The Fate of Flames by Annie Vandermeer Mitsuda. Read by Jeannie Kalbar. Wisps of smoke escaped the jaws of the stone lion, heavy with the scents of cinnamon and sandalwood. Matsusuko inhaled deeply, fighting off a cough that threatened to interrupt the deep, solemn chanting. This was her world now. The darkened tent, the funeral chants, the haze of the incense, and the helmet in her hands, its metal warmed by her constant touch. As a child, she had dreamed of holding something so precious as part of the ancestral armor of the Lion Clan. A wish wreathed her heart, insubstantial as the smoke, that she could give it back, for Arasu to still be wearing it proudly. Akodo Arasu, champion of the Lion Clan, and the man she would have married, lay on the pallet before her, clad in spotless white funerary robes, right side folded crisply over the left hands folded over his still chest. The armor he should have been wearing stood like a hollow, headless corpse in the corner, following the body of its former owner like a ghost until his burial. Suko's fingers tightened on the only piece of it that would not be passed along, her right thumb resting on the curled metal where the arrow had exited, even as her gaze rested on the cloth covering her beloved's eyes. The snap of Doji Hotaru's bow, Arasu's body in my arms, turned to face the sky, one eye sightless, the other a ruin, and the false tears on Hotaru's own eyes as she turned and fled back into Toshirambo, the city the faithless crane had stolen. Totori staring at Hotaru's exit, slow and numb as he ever was, watching uselessly as his brother's murderer ran and closed the gates behind her. Suko-sama! A voice broke into her thoughts, tinged with concern. Your hand! Suko looked down suddenly, the pain breaking through the hot haze of her fury, and she pulled her hand away from the helmet. A deep cut, torn from the ragged edge of the helmet's ruin, ran along the meat of her right thumb and wept a red tear along her arm. She gave a small sigh of annoyance and took the cloth her companion handed to her, nodding in thanks. Hitsu Motso tilted his head sympathetically. All good lion mourn the death of Akoto Arasu. While I do not wish to speed his journey to Yojin no Shiro further than protocol demands, I do worry that you torment yourself with this delay. Suko finished wrapping the small injury and stood, shaking her head. That pain is the fire that forges my rage into something useful, Motso-san. Motso's smile was barely a suggestion. You are crafting some weapon, perhaps? A sword of agony and great blade of the lion? Suko let out a bitter chuckle as she placed the helmet back on her head. One is desperately needed. Even in death, Arasu has more direction than his brother. Her fingers lingered against the metal a moment and she shut her eyes against any tears that might arrive. There, there will, will be, be justice. justice. It, will it will consume those who, who took you from me. She opened her eyes again, fixing an intense gaze on Mozo, 
and even he seemed discomfited by its heat. Until the Asari plains are reclaimed from the crane's clutches, I cannot rest, and neither can his spirit. As servants busied themselves clearing the vestiges of the service, Suko exited the tent, Moto at her heels, to the welcome sound of an army preparing for war. Organized lines of lion troops conducted near-constant drills with swords, spears, bows, and even hand-to-hand. All our lives we of the lion practice war. How many of us have truly faced it? How many would run bravely forth, as the greatest of us once did? And how many would hesitate as others died? Her face grew even grimmer. They must drill until thought and action are one, empty of indecision and fear, full of determination. They shall not fail as Tatori did. Her gaze was fire. As I shall not. The pair had almost reached the officer's tent when a young Matsubushi approached them, a strange look in her eyes, somewhere between joy and worry. Forgive this interruption, my lady, but there are a group of ronin waiting to speak with you. They say they captured Shirai Mora. Kitsumoto gave a small sound of curiosity. Beside him, Suko stiffened and frowned. Ronin? Who hired them? The bushi glanced around uneasily and lowered her voice until it was hardly audible. They said the Lion Clan did, my lady. Suko's mouth drew into a thin line. Motosan, go to these ronin and tell them to wait outside my tent. I will receive them when I am ready. Her gaze held a quiet heat. And continue the preparations for battle tomorrow. Suko didn't wait around to see Moto deal with the ronin, or even to dismiss the awkward young bushi, instead stalking directly into her tent. Servants looked up, startled at the look on the woman's face, but obeyed with quick respectful nods at her demands to start a fire and bring out preparations for tea. As her attendants hurried about their tasks, another servant helped Suko don her armor. The lioness's eyes were fixed not on the bindings, but on the flint and steel clicking sparks into the hungry kindling. Ronin. A wince fluttered over her features as her new wound twitched while she laced a grieve. I was not told of this, and if Moto had heard of such a command, he gave no sign. He is already acting against Atori's orders by riding with me now, enabling my delay to lay Arasu to rest. This is not him. A spark caught, and a small flame leaped, sending the scent of burning rice stalks into the air, dried refuse from the fields around them. Neither is this Tori's doing. Even he is not so without honor as to hire Ronin. Or, more likely, he is not so decisive. An escaped hiss escaped her lips, and she looked down to see blood spotting the cloth over her wound. Taking a deep breath to steady herself, Suko unbound and washed the cut, binding it again with deliberate care. She moved to pick up her helmet, but paused, her hand against its white mane, then left it sitting on the rack. I shall see these ronin plainly, and hear their say. Show them in, she ordered, and went to stand near the fire as the servants bowed and exited the tent. A short time later, the tent flap opened and four people, one in the lead and the other two dragging a bound and hooded prisoner, stepped inside. 
the leader immediately regarded Suko with a grin, and flourished a bow that was both too low and too ungraceful. Man unused to dealing with authority. Lady Suko, fearsome daimyo of the Matsu, I greet you, the ronin declared, his tone as oily as his thin, dark hair and white-touched mustache. I am Kujira, master of the warriors of the boar, and I have two gifts for you today. First among them is Shirai Village, captured by myself and my troops. And the second, he jerked his head at his attendants, who unceremoniously dragged forth the prisoner to stand beside Kujira. Is this fine specimen? With a flourish, he yanked off the hood of the fourth figure, causing a mess of long white hair to spill everywhere. Suko's heart stopped for a moment, and she hardly realized that she had her hand on the hilt of her sword before she recognized the individual. Not, Not Doji Hitaru, but Kawanan, her brother. Why in heaven's name is he here? Never fear, Matsusama. This one had the fight knocked pretty well out of him, and I tied those bonds myself, he snorted, tucking his thumbs under the rough leather belt that held his ill-fitting armor onto his wide frame. Even a large bird breaks easily when you batter it around a bit, eh? Suko stepped forward, her dark eyes locking onto Kawanin's pale ones. Though strong and heavy-set, the heir to the Crane Clan had seen better days. The hitched breathing told of at least one broken rib, and bruises spotted vivid purple on his skin. He wore a simple set of pale garments and armor padding, both stained with grime and splattered with blood. A skillful capture to take him alive, Suko found herself saying, not removing her eyes from Kawanan's. And you say you took the village as well? I hardly lost a man in the fight, too, Kujira snorted, obviously proud of himself. Sent a group of my best thundering in on their horses. Got the peasants and a mess of crane troops scared inside the walls. This one and a few of his archers hung out to cover their retreat. And they didn't do so bad, either. Killed more than their fair share. But archers don't outrun horses so well. Especially when we had our own in those fields, disguised as farmers. He and his troops didn't even see my men coming before we had them netted like honking geese. After that, it was just a simple matter of finding who was worth your time and killing the rest. Suko's eye twitched, but her gaze didn't waver. And the village? Kajira's voice grated like cicadas in summer. That was the best part. Got half my men into the dead crane gear, tied up the rest like prisoners. Called up to the villagers like we were successful. Another bit of cunning, getting the crane passphrases for safe travel. And once we had them all together, we killed every crane we could find and any peasant stupid enough to try and hide them. Maybe one or two got away. But that just lets the crane learn how badly they were beaten by the lion. And the warriors of the boar. One of the ronin holding Kuanan snickered and his half-toothed smile grew wider as Suko's sword left its sheath with a slow song of oiled metal. The crane samurai did not flinch, even as Kajira gave a dark chuckle. Figured you might want to ransom him, or we would have done the job for you. But then again, I heard what his sister did to your man. Not a bad idea, trading a death for a death. Suko's eyes searched Kuanan's. No fear. 
rage, or false tears lived in them, just an intensity watching her as she did him, waiting. Suko glanced at Kujira, whose nose seemed to be twitching in anticipation of bloodshed. The warriors of the boar, she said slowly. Not named for the lost boar clan, I would imagine. Kujira looked confused a moment, then guffawed. What? <laughs> there was a boar clan? The large ronin shook his head, his armor clanking. We're just boar for wealth, of which we certainly got our share in this shake-up, believe it. Not a lot of crane to go around, but those pretty little weapons of theirs killed just as well. And while them peasants don't have much, those sneaky bastards got prizes hidden where you least expect it. The half-toothed ronin started to chuckle darkly as Suko placed the blade of her sword against Kuanan's shoulder. You were correct about one thing, leader of the warriors of the boar, she said pointedly. There is a death that will set things on a better path. The big man grinned, which lasted eerily, even after Suko's strike, which opened up his neck almost to the spine. The other ronin cried out in horror as Kujira's body slumped to the ground, blood pooling in dark clouds against the dirt. In an instant, Suko's blade was leveled at them, and they held up their hands in surrender. Spare us, howled the half-tooth. I don't want to die. Neither did the people of Shiraimura, but I'm sure you slew them all the same. Please, pleaded the young ronin to the left, who hardly looked past boyhood. I swear, we're not all like Kajira was. Not all of us plundered. Suko fixed him with a long look. Then you are responsible for finding Kitsumoto, making certain all of your troops surrender to him, and returning all that you have stolen. Those who have committed violence against the people of Lionlands, and Shirai Mura is of the lion, must suffer the appropriate penalties. The young ronin nodded, and he and his whimpering companion swiftly exited the tent, dragging the remains of the boastful Kujira behind them. The tent flap had barely closed before the blade sang through the air a second time, separating rope fibers with a precise and dangerous grace. Kuanan glanced downward as the bonds fell from his arms and slowly rubbed at his bruised wrists. Suko pointed her blade to a space at the side of the tent, separated by a paper screen. Water there, and clean clothes. Do as you will. When Kuanan finally stepped from behind the screen... Sand had been scattered across the bloody ground until such time as they could repitch her tent. Suko sat next to the brazier, sipping at a cup of tea. She gestured to a camp stool across from her and wordlessly watched Kuanan sit, mindful of his wounds, and gratefully take the tea in his hands. It was a long moment, punctuated only briefly by small sips of the beverage and the crackle of the flames, before anyone spoke. Why did you spare me? said Doji Kuanan carefully. Suko looked to meet his. Your capture was an act of trickery, a vile deception against you. I would not answer that with more dishonor. She took a long sip of tea, and pride strengthened her voice like steel. The lion did not deceive or steal. We take what we want by strength of honor, or not at all. 
She regarded him carefully before taking another drink. And I am not a beast that I should kill any crane I encounter off the battlefield. I should sooner hate a sword for the actions of its wielder or blame an arrow. <coughs> she cursed herself inwardly for her sudden cough, her throat smarting from too large a cup of tea. An arrow for where its archer sent it. Another long moment of quiet stretched across the tent, which Kuanan again broke. I am deeply sorry for Ara, for the death of Akodosama. The man's voice was halting, strange coming from someone so well built. I trained with him, admired his skill and courage. The man's gaze slid towards the flames of the brazier, his tone bitter. You are not the only one who is angry at a wrongful death, Suko-sama. Her nod was slow, understanding. It is still unknown how he died, then. Your father. Forgive me. Champion Doji Satsume. There is belief by some that my sister's assertions of natural causes are enough. Kuanan's tone was stretched as the skin on her drum. But honor demands more. Simply as a matter of course, if we do not hold to Bushido. We are little better than the Ronin I slew, finished Suko, finishing her cup of tea. I know too well why Tori did not act in the Battle of Toshirambo. He is weak and foolish. But if Ataru can accept the horrible duty of the Crane Clan champion and kill Akoto Arasu, what is preventing her from performing her more important duty, investigating your father's untimely death? Kuanan's gaze dropped from Suko's into the depths of his teacup. The silence hung around them like a haze of smoke, and Suko's eyes returned to the flames in the brazier before her. Deliberately, she prodded the glowing coals with a metal rake, small sparks hissing in different directions. Damn this feeling of unease, she snarled inwardly. Were it that I had met this crane on the battlefield, to see our forces surge around and consume them, and have been done with it, to have taken Shiraimura back myself and made the crane pay for their presumption in blood. Her hand twitched, and Suko's gaze fell on the gore-spattered floor near the tent flap. Vile Ronin, striking at our enemy in lion's name and supposedly paid from our coffers? Her rage itched at her, insistent as a hungry flame. Why would we sink so low to hire such scoundrels? And why would they know who Kuanan was when they captured him? And why not simply ransom him themselves? What else are they trying to gain? She swallowed a snarl. Or what is someone trying to take from me? Beneath the tines of the rake, the flames in the brazier were slowly dying. The sounds of a far greater fire, the readying of her army for war, echoed beyond the cloth of her tent. She, she could, could not, not kill, kill Doji Kuanan. Not now. But she could meet him again on the fields of battle and settle this score in honorable combat, avenging Arasu, reclaiming the Asari plains and proving herself to Tori's better. Or she could send Kuanan to Hataru, where he could confront his sister for her failure of Bushido and potentially help Suko uncover the identity of those who were playing them all as pawns.
duty and loyalty demanded she avenge Arasu's death. Righteousness demanded she bring the deceivers to justice. The very honor of the lion was at stake, and it fell to her to uphold it, even if Akodo Tuturi would not. The Fires of Justice by Annie Vandermeer Mitsoda Read by Jeannie Calvar It took one of the embers snapping beneath the pressure of the iron rake, a little crack, and a feather of flame to break Matsusuko out of her reverie. She did not start or flinch, but she could tell from the slight shift of the man across from her that the change in her demeanor did not go unnoticed. Her eyes flicked again to the edge of the room near the tent flap and fell on the hastily strewn sand scattered across the pool of blood half-soaked into the earth. That blood had been until very recently, inside the body of a detestable ronin named Kujira, who had committed dishonorable acts to capture both the village of Shiremura and the prisoner across from her. A band of ronin hired by the lion to butcher a lion village, she thought, and her teeth were set on edge. That cannot be. She dared to look at the man who was making a quiet show of finishing his tea from a cup that had been empty for several minutes now. Though trained by so many clans, Doji Kuanam was still a crane, and she suspected his heart would fail him before his politeness did. A sudden gust of wind stirred the tent flap, and Suko felt her eyes fixing on the image painted upon it, a lion stalking through the tall grass. They were lions here on the Asari plains, stalking and running down their prey, reclaiming what was theirs. I do not know who hired those ronin, Suko admitted aloud, her eyes locking with Kuanans, and I do not even know if I was expected to care. I have a suspicion I was meant to kill you, that someone thought my rage would demand it. She breathed deeply and squeezed the wound on her right hand to remind her of that cost, the pain a steadying force. Someone has treated us as pawns. Doji Kuanan's face darkened suddenly, but resolved into confusion as he fought away any hint of insult. Are you certain? Suko pursed her lips. It is the uncertainty of the situation that gives me pause, she said carefully. I did not know you would be at Shiraimura. I don't know if any of the lion did. Or at least, they did not see fit to tell me. And I knew nothing of these ronin either. 
It was expected that I, that I would be going to Yojin no Shiro to bury my betrothed, but anger flared in her at the memory of the meeting in the war pavilion after the disaster at Toshirambo, the denunciation of Matsu Agatoki, of Okoda Tutori's condescension, to her pain and not to her point, and even Kitsumoto's own reluctance to engage. I imagine that few believed I would simply obey and travel straight there, Suko continued. Someone might have assumed well enough that the Asari planes would be foremost in my attentions. And revenge, added Kuanan quietly. Suko nodded slowly, and he looked down a moment, digesting this, and shook his head in disgust. To use your grief... And at the death of so great a man is reprehensible. There was a long silence, stretched out like a fading wisp of smoke. So, what would you have us do? he finally asked. My duty is to my people, to my clan, and to my champion, she admitted. I am bound to this to rid the ronin from Shiraimura, to travel to Yojin no Shiro and Leokoto Arasu to rest, and, finally, to return and reclaim the Asari Plains as lion lands. But right now, your life is at my mercy. Kuanam bristled slightly, but she raised a hand for understanding, and he relaxed. We both honor Bushido, and we respect each other. And as you hate the idea of me being used as a pawn, so do I loathe that you may be as well. I ask you to address the demand of your heart, and to answer for yourself the question you could not answer for me. She felt the heat rise on her face as her fist clenched and pain shot up her arm. Ask Doji Hutaru, champion of the Crane clan, killer of my beloved, ask your sister why she does not do as duty demands and investigate the death of your father. Suko took a deep breath. A storm of strange fates has brought us together, but if someone believes you have a question to ask that carries a danger to it, even being voiced, her eyes bored into Kuanan's. Then perhaps someone saw worth in trying to have you silenced. The stars had begun to show their faces when Matsusuko and Doji Kuanan exited the tent. The latter clad as a simple merchant, straw hat drawn low, his telltale white hair bound up and away from view. The horse he mounted was perhaps too fine a specimen for an ordinary merchant, and the rider's bearing too proud. But Tsuko hoped he would reach his destination before anyone grew overly suspicious. This arrangement is still very odd, Kwanan admitted as he slid into the saddle with a wince. But I understand its wisdom. Friend or foe, perhaps it is best I remain unseen. 
It is strange for me as well, Suko admitted, passing over the reins of the animal. But our cause is righteous. You will disappear from Shiremura, and appear in Kudunkakita with a tale of escaping my foolish Ronin captors. Kuanan finished. I am no playwright, but I should have a serviceable story assembled by the time I reach the city. And I know someone with an even greater talent for words who will be waiting for me at the castle. Suko nodded, barely perceptible in the low light, and another pause followed. A familiar tempo. Farewell, Suko-sama, Kuanan said at last. Sayonara, Kuanan-sama. She watched his retreating figure until it was lost from sight and the soft echo of hoofbeats had vanished into the night air. In his retreat, an image rose unbidden in Suko's mind, a swallow with its tail on fire, returning in panic to its home, only to set the whole of it ablaze. A dark part of her wondered how the conflagration would begin, even as she dimly hoped Kuwanam would be smart enough to survive it, and if those flames would be enough to burn away the artifice of their enemies.' 